Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Andrew, or Drew, Bird, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine within the Division of Allergy and Immunology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, in the good old US of A. Drew is director of the Food Allergy Center at Children's Health, also in Dallas, and is also a Dedman Family Scholar in clinical care. Drew received his medical degree from the University of Texas Medical School in San Antonio before completing a pediatrics residency and fellowship in allergy and immunology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I think you're seeing a theme here, also in Texas. Drew was the inaugural recipient of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology Food Allergy Initiative Howard Gittis Memorial Award which led to a clinical research fellowship in food allergy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. He's a frequent recipient of Best Doctor Awards. In his spare time, Drew enjoys spending time with his wife and three young children, as well as gardening, traveling, watching college football and bird watching. He did tell me that he did enjoy making pies, although having three young children, the pies have had to wait. Professor Drew Bird, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great to be here. And I do have to point out for the UK audience, you know, it's 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 the sweet pies I like. I've been asked before if it's savory or sweet pies, and it's it's the sweet kind that I enjoy making. You know, I I should have thought to make that point. I lived half my life in the United States, and of course, when I think of an American pie, I'm thinking pecan pie and apple pie and cherry pie and all that kind of stuff. And incidentally, for for Folks living on this side of the duck pond who've never been to the United States, you will notice that wherever you go in the smallest town in America, there'll be a shop and the pie it sells invariably is the best and the most famous in the world. (laughs) Always. There's a great scene in that movie Elf with Will Ferrell where he sees a coffee shop that says the world's best coffee and he bursts in and says, congratulations, you did it. So, that's right. That's right. Anyway, so so Drew, start us off. Tell us about what led you to pursue a career in medicine. And was there something specific that took your interest into pediatric allergy uh, and, and immunology? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for having me and, and for that uh, very astute question. As you pointed out, I am a Texan. So I actually grew up on a cattle ranch uh, in East Texas. My father managed cattle and um one of the biggest influences in me growing, for me growing up was our pediatrician. He really had a big influence on how we, we revered him. We thought that he was uh, very smart and very kind and very uh, just really took good care of us. And so that influenced my desire to be a pediatrician and to want to care for children and families in the same way. And then during my tra- training, I had experience with HIV patients. It was the late 90s. And um, it was uh, at the time when there were more treatments becoming available for HIV AIDS patients. And I got really interested in immunology. And that led me then to an allergy immunology fellowship in Houston at Texas Children's after my pediatrics training. And while there, I was exposed to Carla Davis, who was doing some food allergy research, got interested and then had a chance to work with Wesley Burks after meeting him and got very interested in the field of food allergy. And so it was really an academic pursuit, but also at the time there were new studies showing ways to treat food allergies that I found very interesting. 
and had the opportunity then to further my, my research and my training. And uh, as a result, kind of ended up on this winding road going from HIV research or, or interest to food allergy, which uh, seemed like they couldn't be farther apart, but all along the immunology spectrum. So there's a theme, um, and I think there's a book in this, of how people inspire their charges to follow a particular course. My story would have been the same. I can name specific people. And in fact, it was the surgeon who took my appendix out when I was 10 years old that I was in awe of. And there's there's a certain it factor that these people have when they influence uh, younger folks to pursue a career in medicine. And if we could bottle it, boy, would that be a powerful drug. So let's get into, into the topic. There's, there's much greater awareness now about allergies than back when I was training. Peanut allergy was not a thing back then, for instance. So a two-part question, where did it come from? And more generally, are there any misconceptions about your field in this regard? Because there's no doubt about it. These allergies are real and really dangerous. So is it that we were fools back then? Or is it that peanut allergy, etc., are new phenomena? No, I, I think... That's a great question. Where did it come from? Number one, we're seeing all types of allergies are increasing. So it's not just food allergy, but we see that more allergic disease in general, more asthma, more environmental allergies. And we really do believe that there's a role of the environment involved here, microbial exposures that we've probably, your audience has all heard of the hygiene hypothesis, but there's that hygiene hypothesis, the, the microbial exposures early in life, as well as a genetic predisposition. Actually, I'm sorry to interrupt your flow. You've said that everyone may know about it. Some people may not know what the hygiene hypothesis is. That basically means being too clean, right? That has a role in it, right? It's those microbial exposures early in life, kind of looking at the difference between some of the uh, microbes that if we look at two very different populations, those that are involved in kind of a farming environment compared to those who are involved in a cleaner environment have different exposures to microbes earlier in life. And that influence on the microbiome certainly can influence how the immune system develops. And so it's it's understanding the combination of, of those exposures as well as the genetic predisposition that is there. Um, and with particular interest in food allergy, what we're learning more about is the timing of allergen introduction early in life and how giving these highly allergenic foods early in life can influence sensitization and then allergy development. In, in, in which direction? So should you be giving people peanut butter as little babies or should you not be giving it? So you should, right? And so a lot of the, the really interesting studies that have moved that uh, concept forward have been done by Gideon Lack there in the UK. And the hypothesis he's proposed is this dual allergen exposure hypothesis that really uh, demonstrates that the strongest risk factor we see for food allergy development is the presence of eczema. And why is that uh, an underlying factor? Well, what we know is that the damaged skin barrier uh, can then allow for absorption of, of food allergens through the skin. And that leads to sensitization and food allergy. And this is in the absence of pre-existing oral tolerance. And, you know, the concept for a long time was that you really needed to ingest the food to be sensitized. But we've, we've seen from uh, many observational studies, as well as some excellent mouse uh, studies showing that sensitization can occur through the skin. We know that skin uh, sensitization can also occur through the respiratory tract, but, but that exposure before ingestion certainly happens. And so what, what we are seeing in terms of prevention is this ability, if we can get the, the allergenic food in the diet before uh, sensitization or, or allergy actually develops, 
we can prevent lifelong allergies from developing just by changing the way that the child is 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 fed early in life. It's interesting. Interesting. Hasn't there been stuff written about the, I guess, a modification of the genome of, of peanuts and such like? You may be referring to the way that peanuts are, are processed and leads to different allergenicity. For instance, if you boil peanuts compared to if they're roasted, is that what you're referring to? Or I don't know. I've heard various things. I just want to know if there's any truth to any of it. That's a, I'm not aware of any uh, it, genome changes that would, that would allow for different allergenicity, but certainly we see that the way that the foods are prepared can lead to different um, allergenic potential of the food. Right, great. So your research has, has focused on life-threatening reactions to food, and you're currently working on several clinical trials that use food proteins for immunotherapy. Again, I want to stress, most of our audience are healthcare practitioners, but some are not. They're just uh, interested members of the public. So could you please tell our listeners about these trials, explaining the principles and what sort of things you've discovered thus far? Absolutely. Some of the ways that we have approached trying to treat food allergy can you can broadly think of these in two different um, approaches either allergen specific immunotherapies where we give small amounts of the allergen gradually and then try to induce a desensitized state just through gradually building up over time the amount of allergen that the person is exposed to or allergen nonspecific which are more immunologic type of approaches that may block the immunologic pathways that lead to anaphylaxis. What we really know more and more about are, and have studied longer are these allergen-specific approaches. And the most widely known is an approach called oral immunotherapy. And the work that I've done uh, with oral immunotherapy primarily has looked at the potential to desensitize peanut allergic patients. And the reason peanut is a peanut allergy is a good allergy to study is because it's typically lifelong. And so in the absence of therapy, it's unlikely you're going to have any improvement for most people. Now, 20 to 30% of individuals diagnosed early in life may develop natural tolerance, but clearly the majority of those who are allergic do not. And so with oral immunotherapy, we take very small amounts. If you think of one peanut being approximately 300 milligrams of protein, we start somewhere around half a milligram of peanut protein and then gradually build up over a period of four to six months and allow a person who may have reacted at very small amounts, so 100 milligrams or less of peanut protein, we build them up over time to where they're then able to ingest anywhere from 300 to 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000 milligrams of peanut protein on a regular basis. What we're seeing is that we can get individuals safely desensitized. For the most part, there are uh, side effects that are noted with those treatments, but that inducing a permanent disease remission or tolerance is very, very challenging. And so we're, we're learning more and more how, about how to do that. Other approaches that we've taken to desensitizing individuals have involved placing even smaller amounts of peanut protein under the tongue. It's an approach called sublingual immunotherapy or SLIT. And with that approach, we also start with minuscule amounts of peanut protein. The highest dose we get to for those studies has been somewhere between two and four milligrams of protein for most peanut studies. And then a newer concept we're starting to get more excited about is an approach called epicutaneous immunotherapy where a patch is placed on the skin that has microgram quantities of peanut and through exposure through the skin and, and the uh, local dendritic cells um, taking up the protein and transferring that to local lymph nodes, we can then see that you can induce a desensitized response for some individuals using that approach as well. That's interesting. So I said in the introduction that you're director of the Food Allergy Center at Children's Health. 
Talk us through what you get up to there, how you're raising awareness among the public and referring doctors, and what kind of research and treatment you're actively undertaking. I, I think one of the things that drove me to phrase that question like that is there's still a body of people who think that this is all hokum and that these allergies aren't real. They are real. And we, you know, there was a very high profile death of a girl uh, who ingested a, a peanut protein, I believe. So they are real. They are threatening. What do you get up to? Yeah, no, that's very astute. And earlier you asked about misconceptions and, you know, some of the misconceptions that we do see are a lack of an appreciation for the seriousness of the allergy. And, you know, even more so, we do see this confusion within the lay literature of a difference in intolerances and allergies and um, the ability to order testing on your own and and self-diagnose. And so it it does lead to dilution of of the facts and, and the severity that can occur, even small amounts of these uh, exposures can lead to serious reactions. And so, yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem. And so how we address that within the food allergy center, number one, we're within UT Southwestern. So it's an academic approach where we focus not only on comprehensive clinical care, but we also have a commitment to research and then to education. And so within the clinical care realm, we're very fortunate that we have a dedicated dietitian. We're able to perform oral food challenges in an observed safe space, which is where we uh, take individuals who who may or may not be allergic, but give small amounts of the food and then gradually increase to an approximate serving size to see if they have a reaction. And when we look beyond the life-threatening allergies, we're also doing uh, work with other specialists like a GI specialists to care comprehensively for kids uh, with eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders. Um, and we're able to offer some, some newer therapies like immunotherapy here in a, a a dedicated space that practices on evidence-based medicine. And so I, you know, I think that comprehensive clinical care approach is a very valuable aspect of what we do in the Food Allergy Center. When we look at the, the research, as you mentioned earlier, we're doing interventional research, but we're also looking at uh, ways to prevent food allergy and different approaches that might lead to a, a long-term benefit for affected children. We participate in multi-center trials. We're a part of the COFAR network for the OUTMATCH trial. We are part of FAIR, which is a food allergy research and education advocacy organization. We have developed a, an allergy consortium with the University of Arkansas and some investigators at both Dell Children's and, and Baylor College of Medicine to, to work on other diseases. So that multi-center approach is, is beneficial, allows us to study more rare diseases. And we have an interdisciplinary research consortium here within the, the university where we're working with a pathologist who has a focus and interest in genetics of food allergy and diagnostics. And so we have a very comprehensive research portfolio that's really looking to see how we can advance care for kids. In terms of education, um, we have a, we always have students around, which is great. And that's what keeps a lot of us here and, and excited. We're training students and residents and fellows. And um, one of the things we've done recently that I, I'm excited about, we started in the last year, is we started having just small group dinners with community pediatricians here in Dallas to get more one-on-one conversations about questions they have in practice. You know, a lot of things don't get communicated well through uh, clinical reports or practice parameters. And so being able to have these small conversations with a few individuals has really been um, enjoyable, but also been insightful uh, for me and for them. And so we're, we're doing some outreach just to try to improve messaging and, and provide better care for for the kids in the Dallas and North Texas communities. 
Yeah, absolutely. Communicating with referring doctors is, is obviously important and communicating with the general public. I mean, people today are more and more sophisticated and the means of communicating are, are more uh, open to hospitals, to clinicians. The other problem is there's so much misinformation out there, it's important to get the right information, right? Without a doubt. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation. I mean, you know, there's the misconceptions, but the misinformation is, is just as bad. There are, there are a lot of testing modalities that are advertised as being beneficial. And so frequently we see patients who've had a number of tests that do not identify the disease that they are trying to figure out. And so we do spend a lot of time on education with families, trying to help them understand validated testing methods and, and understand the difference again in intolerances and allergies. So we've, we've mentioned peanut allergies and it's always in the news. What are the other emerging food allergies which are not receiving enough attention or, or research dollars per chance? Yeah, certainly peanut allergy gets a lot of attention. Um, but, you know, we see a lot of tree nut allergies, seed allergies like sesame seed. And what I see a lot of that I worry about are kids who have persistent milk and egg allergies. While the, most folks will outgrow those allergies, there can be individuals who are allergic lifelong and those can be very, very severe. We see multi-food allergic patients who have very restricted diets and very restricted abilities to um, interact at school and at camps and do things that other kids do. And so those multi-allergic kids really are the ones who need, need help the most. And so desensitizing a child to one food alone may not be the answer they need. And so we need better approaches to caring for them more comprehensively. And then, you know, the, the uh, more rare food allergies, things like uh, food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome or FPIs, doesn't get enough attention, but it can be a, a significant disease that causes a lot of problems. And then the eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases, like I alluded to earlier, are something we're trying to address in a comprehensive way. It, it takes multiple specialists to really care for those kids comprehensively. Yeah. So you, you mentioned some of the research and the Palisade study. It's a phase three trial which aimed to examine oral immunotherapy for peanut allergy. Tell us a bit more about that study and its results, if you would. Yeah, it was an exciting study. It was one that we were proud to be a part of, and it enrolled peanut allergic kids and adults four to 55 years of age. Most of the individuals enrolled were between the four to 17 year age group. And we see that most of our studies actually tend to recruit those patients. It's, it's a little bit more difficult to get food allergic adults to enroll in studies. For that study, uh, we took very uh, sensitive individuals who had to be reactive to peanut at 100 milligrams or less. And as I mentioned earlier, one peanut is about 300 milligrams. So these are individuals who reacted to about one third of a peanut kernel. And then we performed oral immunotherapy for these individuals, building them up to a maintenance dose of 300 milligrams. And so having them eat the equivalent of about one peanut a day. And what we found after having the individuals go through this buildup and the maintenance therapy for about six months was that 67% were able to ingest 600 milligrams of peanut protein or more compared to 4% on placebo. So a very significant benefit. And the upside of this is that it did lead to the first FDA approved therapy for peanut allergy. So I, I think that, you know, it has the potential, had the potential and still does have the potential to really expand to other food allergy therapeutics. Uh, hopefully coming before too long. So you also recently co-authored a paper entitled Oral uh, Food Challenge Protocol for Food Protein-Induced Enterocolitis Syndrome, Time for a Change. Tell us about the syndrome and then the conclusions which your 
paper reached. You mentioned uh, eosinophilic syndromes earlier. Is this one of them? This is not an eosinophilic syndrome, but it is a non-IgE mediated uh, syndrome. FPIs is more is rare. We see it more commonly in infants uh, and young children, but we're starting to recognize it in adults as well. But it's characterized. There isn't necessarily a test or a biopsy you can do to show that someone has it. So it's diagnosed based on the characteristic clinical symptoms. And those clinical symptoms are delayed repetitive vomiting, most commonly in infants and children, and accompanied by symptoms like paleness, lethargy, and diarrhea. And we see it to foods that are common allergens like milk, but oftentimes we see it to foods that are not commonly allergenic. So foods like oats or rice or soy, or even some vegetables. And again, it usually presents in infancy uh, and then it resolves over time. But the, the paper itself addressed the, the fact that the internationally, the diagnostic approach varies a bit in how food challenges are performed. And so the, the point of our paper was to highlight those differences and then to encourage a standardization and multi-institutional collaborations that could help inform practitioners and help inform families. And we also know that a lot of these food challenges, they're time consuming because it's delayed vomiting, usually two to three hours after ingestion, you have to keep the kids and families in your clinic for a long period of time. So because of that requirement and because the kids can vomit and may need IV fluid rehydration, most of these food challenges are performed in academic centers that are close to hospitals. And so we're trying to see if there are approaches and ways to get these more broadly performed outside of referral centers, because as you can imagine, the referral centers tend to get very backed up. And so it would be great to have more community uh, physicians being able to perform these safely. Right. Tell us about some of the environmental factors that might lead to new allergies. Yeah, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, a lot of this goes back to how we influence that microbiome and the beneficial factors that we have identified that seem to, to favor formation of diverse microbiota are things like growing up in the rural environment with a farm animal contact. Um, we know that nutrition plays a big role. So uh, nutrition that is rich in dietary fibers and really importantly, high food diversity. And, and I try to encourage families to really keep that diet and the infants very diverse with a lot of fresh fruits and fresh vegetables in infant safe forms. But we know that diversity promotes a diverse microbiota that's beneficial. And also we've seen that early contact with siblings can be beneficial. And again, it goes back to that exposure to infectious agents early in life and, and bacteria and viruses that can be beneficial for promoting tolerance development at a very important time. Things that can be harmful and, and may lead to more allergies. We know that things like obesity promote that, that, we, you know, that a lack of physical exercise may pr promote um, allergy development. We know that diets high in processed foods, um, all these types of factors are associated with a decreased microbial diversity. And we're also seeing things uh, like air pollution, diesel exhaust, ozone, um, things like bioaerosols, like, like cigarette smoke, all those things can prime airway inflammation and lead to sensitization as well as compared to these beneficial aerosols. So things like in farming lifestyle, we see that the aerosols in a farming environment are higher in factors that can promote tolerance development. And so again, it goes back to the things we see in the environment that promote inflammation compared to things that promote um, diversity and tolerance development can, can make a big difference. So just to go back and to reemphasize, you mentioned obesity and eating processed foods. These are pro-inflammatory moves, if you will. Correct. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's funny that when I've met patients who 
you know, they have an issue and you point out that their obesity plays a role and, you know, doing so as politely and subtly as possible, it's not uncommon to get pushback. The fact it's kind of like, well, smokers with, with lung disease, you know? Yeah, you're right. There's a, there certainly is a propensity for us to all want a pill to fix everything rather than thinking of a lifestyle change to, to, to fix that. But certainly, uh, obesity, which I think dealing with adults is more challenging. And, and while I see adults on our consult service, I don't see them as often in, in, uh, my clinical practice. And, don't have to have those hard conversations as much with adults, but uh, we're seeing obesity in kids as well. And the lack of physical exercise in the U.S. in general is is a challenge. So we're we do try to promote those just healthy lifestyle things for a number of reasons, but it does seem to have an effect on allergy development as well. Well, I remember talking to my my kids' pediatrician, uh, who pointed out that both of my very healthy children seem to truck along the. Gaussian distribution curves for, for height and weight. For height, they were, you know, bang on the 50th centile, right? Or maybe just a little bit above. But for weight, oh, they were positively, you know, malnourished. <laughs> I mean, what a sad state of affairs. I'm, I was half expecting social services to be banging <laughs> on the door. You know, why are your children at the 20th centile? Yeah, you were feeding your kids well. Healthy foods, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, there, that's another discussion to talk about how these how these uh, general curves are made and the fact that perhaps they're they're not not exactly where they need to be. They're swayed a little bit um, to the obese side because the population in general is getting heavy. But yeah, yeah, very interesting. I also learned during COVID. I mean, I now live back in my native Britain, uh, which incidentally, the climate here has dramatically changed far more sunny days than they used to be but vitamin d levels um, are lower in britain low vitamin d levels are quite common amongst adults and it turns out that the range of normal is the same in in texas as it is in glasgow <laughs> well you don't think maybe folks we need to change things up a little bit well, and vitamin D, you know, we, it, it's also, there's been attempts to link vitamin D to, to allergy development. Vitamin D's been trying to tie that to everything, but um, no, you're right. The the exposure, the sun exposure is certainly different for you than it is for us. Yeah, there you go. So what what's on the horizon that uh, could change things for the better or the worse for your patients? No, I am excited about the future. There are, are several things in development. And if you compare it, I, you know, I, I finished... Uh, fellowship training in 2009, so close to 15 years, there have been quite an acceleration in, the, in investing in food allergy research and in the future. So I think great things are coming. As I mentioned earlier, we've done studies looking at epicutaneous immunotherapy where very small amounts of allergen are placed on the skin uh, daily. And what we found in some recent studies has demonstrated that this is very effective in very young children with peanut allergies. And so I, I there are a few more studies coming out to validate the safety and the approach. Um, but I, I'm very hopeful that when the, within the next few years, we'll have more treatment options for families. As you can imagine, trying to feed a kid the same food every day, if you do the oral approach, can be very challenging for a number of reasons. And so if we have alternative approaches that require uh, less observation, have less side effects, and, and have the ability to really transform the immune response through skin exposure, I think that's exciting and, and, and great. So I'm looking forward to that. We've participated in some studies. I mentioned earlier the, the NIH-funded consortium, the 
of Food Allergy Research, COFAR, has a study called Outmatch that's looked at using omelizumab along with oral immunotherapy. And omelizumab is a monoclonal antibody that prevents the binding of free IgE to uh, mast cells and basophils and, and protects against anaphylaxis. And so we're seeing that the uh, ability to combine omelizumab with oral immunotherapy may be able to get these multi-food allergic kids to a state where they can safely be exposed to foods and be safely desensitized. So we're hopeful that we'll have results for them for that outmatch trial out in the next uh, year or so that, that are, are going to, you know, we'll see what the results show once we have final analysis, but I'm optimistic that we may have some changes there in the not too distant future. There is some research going into looking at approaches like BTK inhibitors and BTK inhibitors you are probably more familiar with their use in B-cell lymphoma, but because they are involved in B-cell development, they really can play a key role in FC receptor signaling, which that's that high, the fast-acting IgE uh, signaling receptor that, that really is important in um, the pathogenesis of allergic reactions. And what we've seen in BTK inhibitors is that we can block fatal anaphylaxis uh, in a mouse model. They have a very quick onset, quick offset, but the downside of these BTK inhibitors is their side effect profile. And we see things like thrombocytopenia and diarrhea and fatigue and neutropenia, things like that, which uh, individuals with uh, B-cell lymphomas are willing to accept, but for an allergic disease, probably not willing to accept those. So there are a newer generation of BTK inhibitors that are being looked at who have improved tolerability and I think could play a, a huge role in our patients with food allergies. Again, having that quick onset, quick offset, you can imagine if you are an allergic individual traveling out of the country or going on a camping trip far away from medical care, uh, that having that added protection against anaphylaxis is very important. And so if you could even use these things for a short time, I think it can make a big difference in the quality of life. And then we're seeing some, some newer trials coming out in the next year. There's an immune tolerance network trial that is sponsored looking at inhibition of TSLP, combining that with OIT and TSLP also has a role in that TH2 immune response. And uh, we, we are thinking based on some preliminary data that blocking TSLP could lead to improved tolerance in, with oral immunotherapy, and it could make oral immunotherapy safer and have better effects long-term after oral immunotherapy is discontinued. And so I, I'm hopeful that we'll have a number of things um, being investigated in the next year that may lead to changes in the not too distant future for our food allergic patients that could really be uh, favorable and exciting. And, and again, give a, a population of patients who haven't really had many things to choose from some options for care in the next decade or so. Two questions, really. The first is, do the children that you see with these, uh, the sort of kids that you see, do they tend to come from uh, more challenging socioeconomic backgrounds, number one? And number two, how do you advocate for better care for your patients? Sure. So I, I think if we're looking at the patient population, we see we see the spectrum. I don't think that there is a, a predisposition in the patient population to, to have some sort of um, higher prevalence of food allergy because of a socioeconomic background. That being said, we do tend to see in general, when we look at large epidemiologic studies that we're seeing a rising incidence of, of food allergy and underrepresented minority populations. And that needs to be a little bit further parsed out to see exactly why that is, or if it is a real allergy or not. But I, I think regardless, what, what we are privileged to see within our 
practice is is that we see the spectrum of socioeconomic backgrounds. And one of the things that, that we really try to spend a lot of time doing is education. And we educate the families, we educate the patients when possible. And I, I think probably across specialties, but especially in allergy, I, I do feel there's an under-recognition for the role of mental health uh, in disease. And so we try to promote and normalize incorporating a psychologist or a counselor within the child and family dynamic when possible, especially when we see anxiety developing about uh, food allergies or, or eating to try to address a more holistic approach to caring for the kids. And, and one of the things that we do really for, for a lot of our kids is different in families is differentiating those life-threatening allergies or reactions from non-life-threatening reactions and starting very early in the child's life, educating on how to interact in a healthy way in the environment and, you know, establishing boundaries, but, but making sure they're safe and reasonable, encouraging the families to socialize the kids um, and really just trying to stay in constant communication. Outside of that direct relationship, which I think is important, we also uh, are involved in legislative committees on school health and on epinephrine use in schools. Um, our faculty are involved in national allergy and advocacy organizations. I think all those roles are important in trying to benefit the entire food allergy community. So I guess uh, an aspirational question to finish up with, I always like to ask this question. What are your three wishes for the future of, of healthcare? Maybe in the area of practice that you focus on, or frankly, anything you choose. Floor is yours. Floor is mine. All right. Well, I, I, I do hope that we are starting to evolve into more of a personalized medicine approach where we're not doing a one size fits all for every patient with a disease. And I think that obviously a cure for food allergies is within, within that personalized approach. But I think that we will start to see as we understand the immunopathology of disease development and particularly food allergy development that we'll see there are opportunities for treatment that differ amongst patients and families. And so I, I really hope that number one, we have that more personalized approach. I don't think I'm alone in saying another wish is access to everyone for equal opportunities for healthcare, where we minimize waste and we improve efficiency. And really, we see an importance of getting specialist care to populations that don't have it. And so we want to improve that uh, capacity for individuals to have access to specialists, maximizing their quality of life and, and minimizing disease. And then a third wish would be just to be able to focus that care and decision-making that goes within health decisions between the doctor and patient relationship and minimizing any outside influence, whether that's government or insurance or, or whatever else is out there. I think there's a lot of value to that personal relationship. And it's probably one of the reasons a lot of us got into medicine is to have those individual decisions with families. And so I hope that over time, we, we kind of come back to that ability to make those um, important decisions without having to, to worry about other influences. Well, uh, sadly, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. And I'd like to thank you for being with us today and sharing your expertise and helping me certainly understand this, uh, uh, this space more. Professor Drew Bird, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I think I'm going to go and eat some peanut butter and not wash my hands. <laughs> Perfect. I appreciate it. No, I've enjoyed the conversation as well and enjoy your podcast. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, that's very kind of you. So folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode and like us on social media and check out the, uh, the archives. And please join us next week for another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia, and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. So until next time, please stay safe, stay well, 
Stay curious. Bye for now.